0: From 1944 to 1945, the 52nd Lowland Division is fighting its way across northwest Europe. The writing is on the wall, but it's also on the page. The Army Education Branch sends a newsletter out to thousands of men, all pulling together, pushing the enemy back. This newsletter is called The Lowlander. Andy. Hello Marin.
1: Hello hello. We're back again and this week we're looking at editions of The Lowlander that were sent out to the men between the 22nd and the 28th of January 1945.
0: That's right we're looking at the newsletter in detail picking it to pieces and having a little think about what articles are covering. Be that updates from the front or jottings from home well whatever really. Uh, but what's going on this week Marin?
1: This week, January 1945, we have – what's going on? Um, We've got four squadrons of Spitfires destroyed a factory in Ablassadam, which was manufacturing liquid oxygen for German rockets. The West Africa 82nd Division occupied Miohang, Burma, and technically the Battle of the Bulge ended in Allied victory. Oh, and the other thing that happened this week was the, um, the concentration camp at Auschwitz um, was liberated by Soviet forces. But shall we find out first what the jocks are up to, please? Tell us where the men of the 52nd Lowland Division are and what's going on.
0: Well, I always want to tell you what the 52nd Lowland Division doing, so yes, definitely. Uh, well, we talked about last week um, was the start of Operation Blackcock, which is the capture of the Roar Triangle, uh, 12 Corps with 52nd Lowland, 7th Armour Division, 43rd Wessex Division and 8th Armour Brigade. And that's well underway by now. In fact, this week it'll actually come to an end. Um, and it finished on the 25th of January after the clearance of Heinsberg, which is the the last big town in the Roar Triangle that sits right on the River Roar and on the western edge of the Siegfried Line. So by the end of the week, the Jocks have dug in. They're taking rest and recuperation. They're taking stock of the massive battle that's just carried on. Uh, a successful battle at that, I might add. It was completely successful, well within the timescales. So... Um, so we find them ready to go into the next stage of the war.
1: Brilliant. Well, let's get going then, see what they're reading.
0: 22nd of January, 1945. A good day in the West. We have now carved well over 30 square miles of enemy salient between the Mass and the Rohr. Yesterday, several more German villages fell to our advance towards Heinsberg, less than four miles away. Our progress and cleaning up of isolated pockets is methodical and unrelenting. Despite some enemy attempts to interfere with tanks, the prisoners are a mixed bag. A batch of very old and very young was dismissed by one officer with a remark, not one of them would last five minutes at Glasgow Cross.
1: <laughs> I take it Glasgow Cross is a bit rough, is it?
0: Well, on a Saturday night, yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't know what it's like nowadays, but certainly back in the day it was a bit wild. <laughs> um, it's actually the, the sort of junction between the... the the east end of Glasgow and the centre of Glasgow. So I think that's that's where that comes from.
1: But well, Tell me about Heinsberg then.
0: Well, Heinsberg is the main city in the Roar Triangle. So Operation Blackhawk, which we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks, which this news reporter is about, is the clearing of the Roar Triangle. And Heinsberg is that main city, that main town. It's a communication centre for the Germans. It's got roads, railways, etc. into that. It's at the eastern edge of the, the Roar Triangle. So it's kind of the last place you would capture And also it's on the west bank of the River Rohr and the western edge of the Siegfried line, which is the huge defensive line that runs through up up and down the length of Germany. So it's a very serious thing. And once you've captured that, pretty much the Rohr Triangle is actually cleared.
1: Okay, so are they going to get a breather after this? Because they've they've had a week hard at it, haven't they?
0: Yeah. I mean, the division has been operating for about a week. Um, the 7th Armoured Division and the 43rd Wessex as well. But the main fighting um, after the initial couple of days is actually the 52nd. And the 155 Inf- Infantry Brigade, who we talked about last week, they are the ones that actually capture Heinsberg. They capture it on the 24th into the 25th of January. Mm-hmm. Uh, so some stiff fighting, um, but it's cleared. And then they basically spread out right across over the Roar Triangle to sort of secure the ground, but it is very much, that's it, the main battle is over and you can now rest. There are a few other clearance operations going on, but actually the main fighting. And really the division is now going to go into a kind of rest and recuperation, holding a line type job for the next few weeks until the next big operation which comes along in the start of February, which is Operation Veritable, which is clearing the Rhineland.
1: And it's, abs- it's absolutely hooling with cold at the minute. It's, it's snowing, isn't it?
0: Yeah. I mean, it, at some point, the temperatures... Some people say the temperatures get down to minus 20. Um, yeah. Definitely minus 10, I've seen reports of. And, of course, wind chill It is very cold. If you see any pictures of Heinsberg in the Second World War, it's yeah. white, snow everywhere. And um, it's, it's certainly unrelenting weather. 24th of January,
1: 1945. Lado Road clear. Convoys are today rumbling up the new Burma Road with war equipment for the hard-pressed armies of China. Yesterday, Admiral Mountbatten was able to inform Mr Churchill and President Roosevelt that he'd completed, with the help of General Sultan's Chinese troops, the first task set him at Quebec, the opening of the land route to Chungking. On three sides, west, north and northeast, we've gained ground towards Mandalay. The 15th Indian Corps has enlarged its two beachheads on the Burma coast, at Hunter's Bay near Akyab and on Ramri, Tokyo. Good imitators that they are, they have now borrowed the German technique of minimising defeat by talking of our vast numerical superiority in Burma. Now, let's talk about the Lido Road. What do you know about the Lido Road?
0: Uh, Well, there's quite a lot of information in that tiny little news report. But yeah, the Lido Road, so that's one of the main objectives of the war in uh, North India and Burma. Uh, it's so that they can actually get a physical road, a physical land bridge to support the Chinese troops that are fighting the yeah. Japanese in China under, friend of the show, Kang Chang-shek. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I think it was his wife that was friend of the show. But yeah, because at the minute, uh, or up until this point, in fact, it's still carried on, actually, um, all the, the transportation of supplies, equipment, material, men, etc., was actually being flown over what they call the Hump, which is the Himalayas, by uh, U.S. Troop Carrier or U.S. Carrier Command. So basically flying them over Dakotas and supply planes and things like that. Huge effort, very dangerous, very costly. And actually, now that they've opened up the Lado Road, you can actually support them. And, and General Stillwell, the American General, General Vinegar Joe, as he's known, uh, actually supply them in the ground, in the field, by using road transport. And it's quite a feat of engineering. I mean, uh, I mean really... I mean, in the last last month of the war, July nineteen forty five. Skipping ahead a little bit, seventy one thousand tons of supplies were flown over the Hump, um, compared to six thousand using the Lado Road. So it's kind of um, it's kind of it's adding a little bit more, but they're still flying the Hump, but they're still being able to get stuff across that road.
1: Yeah, it was. It, there, it was. There um, was something like fifteen thousand American soldiers um, were tasked to build it. I think there was about another thirty thousand local workers. But loads and loads of men died. It was terrible conditions. Um, mm. Thick, inaccessible jungle. Malaria, dysentery. But the trouble was that although they'd worked out where they wanted to build it they they knew very little about the topography and the soils and and the behaviour of river courses before construction started so they were they were finding this out as they went which it was just not a nightmare all the way through that I know the first convoy took something like about 110 112 vehicles um uh, up the road and yeah. I think it took 3 weeks from start to finish to travel 1700 kilometres it was still it was still a bit of a struggle to get from one end of the road to the yeah. other Churchill That's... called it Churchill called it um an immense laborious task unlikely to be finished until the need for it has passed
0: That's <sighs> a metaphor for life isn't it indeed twenty sixth of january nineteen forty five six pounders can get tigers in a field on the outskirts of valvoigt can be seen the wrecks of two German Tigers. They are a testament to the gallantry and good shooting of an anti-tank platoon of the Cosbys. Four nights ago, the battalion took the village, they expected a counter-attack, and sure enough, at first light, all health let loose around them. With a hail of spandau and mortar fire bursting around them, the anti-tank gun crews saw a line of tanks, led by the Tigers, breaking through the morning mist. They got the first tank squarely in the sights. The next thing the Boche knew was when there was a big muckle hole, as one sergeant expressed it, in the side of his vehicle. Not content with one, the gunners plugged away and got the second. Their action, though not achieved without casualties, took the sting out of the determined attack. But for them was one comment, we might all be in the stalag now. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Do we know what we're talking about here, Mary?
1: Oh, we certainly do. We certainly do. Walked <laughs> through Valdhuik a few times.
0: <laughs> well, I'm going to flag something up straight away. It says an anti tank platoon of the Cosbys. Now, yeah. there is no crime greater to the Kings on <laughs> Scottish Borders than calling to call them call Cosbys. The Cosbys. <laughs> it's K O S B or the Kings Own Scottish Borders. There is no alternative. <laughs> I should imagine that raised a few um, uh, a few a few angry letters known, known the readers of the Lowlander. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so so I'll I'll just fill in the the blanks yeah. for everybody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so Valdfeucht is a small German town, and it's on the German Dutch border. And it was one of the tasks for Fifth Battalion, the King's Own Scottish Borders, to take uh, on the night of the twenty first of January. Um, and it was a night attack. They didn't expect the town to be occupied, so they actually moved into the town fairly quickly, fairly easily, and they took up their positions. And over the night, they secured those positions, and then. By first light, they expected to have their anti-tank gun platoon on the northern edge of the village, overlooking the fields where they thought maybe the Germans might attack. And lo and behold, that's exactly what happened. And as they said, Tiger tanks, and they were Tiger tanks, not mistaken for Mark IVs or anything like that. They actually broke out of the um, of the mist at about a range between about 70 and 100 yards. Now, the reason why the anti-tank guns managed to get them is because just about 100 odd metres to the left of the anti-tank guns was a firefly, a Sherman firefly tank of the 13th, 18th Hussars. And it seems that the Germans' attention was taken by that. So while they were banging away at the the, the firefly, mm. it gave Hunter, and Captain Hunter is the platoon commander they're talking about, and his sergeant time to line them up and actually take on the Tigers. And of course, at 100 yards, even a six-pounder, which is actually not a bad anti-tank gun, managed to knock them out
1: epic
0: yeah and, and actually there's some great film footage and i think we'll pop some of the film footage um on the twitter feed of some jocks from what's probably the fourth battalion of kings on scottish borders who reinforced the fifth later on that day mm-hmm. actually having a good look around the uh, the tank and putting their fingers in the hole where the where the round went through um, and so you can actually see that on the on the uh, on the film
1: brilliant and they go on don't they into the town
0: yeah so um well, the, the attack's sort of split into three parts, uh, and I won't get too technical, but uh, uh, a few of the Tiger tanks go to the northern uh, the, the northern sort of flank, which is um, a town of Ekterbosch, which is just about a mile from Waldvoicht. A few of the tanks come into that northern part of Waldvoicht, which is what we've just described there, and about two, maybe more than two, maybe three Tiger tanks infiltrated into the centre of the village, Mm. And they started wreaking havoc on the 5th Battalion. And in fact, they cut the 5th, 5th Battalion off. And for those of you who have read uh, With the Jocks by Peter White, which we've mentioned before, these are the tanks that he takes on when he drives up in his kangaroo with his platoon to counterattack. And in fact, his, um, uh, his Piat team in his platoon, Peter's platoon, actually take on one of these Tigers. And, and knock it out, or they get a they get a functional kill on it. They don't kill the tank outright, but they mm. kill it enough to make it drive back and clear off out the village. You can tell I'm quite interested in the subject, can't you? <laughs>
1: Very much so indeed. <laughs> it feels like you have put your comfy slippers on. It really does. I have, yeah.
0: <laughs> of course, uh, of course, it's not the first time I've mentioned Valdvoigt uh, in my life. It's um, one of the things I think. One one note we should just bring before we finish this off. Um, somebody in the Lowlander. I suspect has never seen a tiger tank because the tank drawing that they've put on there <laughs> i thought it was a flying saucer to begin with <laughs>
1: <laughs> we'll stick that on twitter as well yeah yeah oh monsieur it is so hard so hard
0: i am trying i am trying
1: no, seriously, it is so hard to read these propaganda leaflets in the blackout, and yet the message is so clear. A battlefield 2, October 2024. Discover what happened after Arnhem, clearing the Rhineland, following the 52nd Lowland Division, and walking with the jocks.co.uk. Is that the baguette in your pocket?
0: eh hey ho he ha!
1: Well, put it away. Twenty seventh of January, nineteen forty five. Sittard Triangle almost cleared. The enemy pocket on the west bank of the Ruhr River has now almost been eliminated. Yesterday morning, the American 9th Army on the right of the recent British push were due to join in the attack, but their patrols found the enemy defenses deserted and they have therefore been able to advance without opposition. On the British part of the front, our patrols have reached the Ruhr River beyond Heinsberg, and more progress has been made northwards towards Ruhrmond. A number of small villages have been taken, and the number of prisoners captured since this operation began is now almost 2,500. Further to the south, the Ardennes salient now no longer exists. The Americans are now actually at some points beyond the places from which von Rundstedt began his attack. Street fighting is reported in Wassabellich at the junction of the rivers Merzel and Sauer and the German town of Trier is under shell fire. The tactical air forces by day and mosquitoes by night destroyed 1,250 vehicles. In Alsace, the initial gains of the enemy north of Strasbourg have now been almost offset by Allied counterattacks, which have wiped out two of the four bridgeheads over the Moda River on either side of Hagenau. South of Strasbourg, American and French troops have made more slight progress on an eight-mile front to the north of Colmar. Now, well, there's a lot of movement there.
0: It's all go, isn't it?
1: It's all go. Yeah.
0: So, I mean, basically, this is just clear. This is the start of the whole clearance operation to clear the basically the west bank of the Rhine mm-hmm. and the Roar to get to the point where they can launch a proper cross-Rhine attack, which will actually happen in the end of March 1945 um but i think the yeah. <laughs> listeners might might know that we're quite interested in the roar triangle heinsberg sitard yeah 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 <laughs> but it's, it's good to see it's a big big push and of course it mentions the americans and we've mentioned the americans a couple of times a few times in 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 the lowlander about a couple of weeks after that they actually move up and they take over the whole of the roar, Tri- roar triangle area as the british move out and they actually they actually end up uh setting up shop in Waldfeucht. Mm. um and, uh, and that's, that's it. So they, they're now in charge of that area because the British are moving north, getting ready for Operation Veritable. 26th of
1: January, 1945. Upper Silesia isolated. With two new victories in Upper Silesia, the First Ukrainian Army has virtually severed the mines and iron foundries there from the rest of Germany. Yesterday's greatest success was the storming of Gleivitz. With over a hundred thousand inhabitants and oil refineries, which last year supplied the Wehrmacht with over a million tons of fuel, it's the largest centre on German soil yet to fall to the Russians. Thirty miles to the southeast, Kryznow, in the heart of the Polish Silesian coal field, has also been seized.
0: Well, I mean it's interesting that the modern Russian army mm. uh, we won't go too much in detail, doesn't actually recognise Ukrainians, but here as part of the Soviet Union, the Ukrainian army has severed the mines and iron foundries. So it's interesting. Mm. There's a little bit of um, um, they sort of pick and choose when 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 Ukrainian you know identity is a thing or not.
1: I'm sorry, <laughs> I'm not even listening. I'm distracted by Stalin.
0: Uh, I mean, I was that. Let's be honest. <laughs> this is why we're here. We were going to go into lots of details about the iron ore foundries in, in Upper Silesia. We've got a new latest addition to our pantheon of terrible drawings. However, like all of the other terrible drawings we've had in the past, you can spot who it is straight away, can't you?
1: You can indeed. He's got this this um, sort of tooth comb moustache and a pipe and this weird, wacky hair. It's definitely Starling.
0: Oh, yeah, it's de- definitely Starling. And uh, I think suggests maybe they've given him slightly Asiatic looks, as they would have called it in them days, to try and uh, um, express that fact. So it's a, <laughs> it's a very interesting uh, very interesting picture. We'll pop that up, definitely pop that up on Twitter. And in fact, maybe... We'll even get people to vote on the best picture at the end of the Lowlander. Maybe that's a good idea.
1: It's not very flattering. No. 27th of
0: January, 1945. The government decided that construction of a road bridge across the Forth cannot be given a high priority after the war, but will be kept under review. A Scottish Shemby described this decision as a real blow to the development of South East Scotland.
1: Now, what do you know about this?
0: Well, I get my fourth road bridges muddled up with the fourth rail bridge. I only know that one because it's red and you paint at one end, you get to the end and you go back again.
1: Yeah. So they found the plans for this bridge not long ago. Right. It was, it was discovered by engineers working on the design for a new visitor's centre. There's There aren't any pictures online, but there is a good description, and it was a triple-arched structure that bore a resemblance to the Sydney Harbour Bridge. It was almost three times bigger, and it had 110-metre mm-hmm. arches and 70-metre masonry towers. And the idea was that – the I mean, it was attributed to the engineers' department in Edinburgh – the idea – was that it was planned as a replacement for the bridge if it was destroyed by long range German V 2 rockets, but it was never built.
0: Oh, okay. Mm. So it was just a, a bit of a pipe dream, maybe?
1: It was a bit of a pipe dream. It was put in a bottom drawer and it was discovered, rediscovered uh, about 10 years ago. Oh, I never. 28th of January 1945. Far East. The 15th Indian Corps is following the American example by leapfrogging down the Arakan coast. Its latest landing, reported yesterday, is on Chiduba, an island five miles south of Ramri. Mopping up continues on the approaches to Mandalay, but once again our Irrawaddy bridgehead has run into stiff opposition. Stiffening resistance is reported from Luzon against American thrusts into the mountains. Clark Airfield has been shelled by the Japanese. Superforts from India have raided bases in Indochina, while others from the Marianas attacked the main Japanese island of Honshu. Tokyo was among the targets. Now, I, I know very little about the Far East. I'll put my hands up to this one.
0: Well, in a, in a, in a couple of paragraphs, they've mm. covered about, about 3,000 miles. De- I mean, it's just astonishing the amount of information in there. <laughs> The, the, the British part that we're talking about is the southern Arakan campaign, uh, campaign yeah. which is, is this leapfrogging amphibious campaign all the way down basically Burma. So while they're fighting in the north of Burma from India after Impal and Gehima, then down into attacking places like Mandalay, etc., there's also this concurrent activity going on in the south where there's these amphibious sort of... They're actually sort of all completely created out there by Field Marshal Slim, the the commander of 14th Army. He sets these small amphibious forces up and they fight these little battles all the way down, putting more and more pressure on the Japanese to hopefully cut off Rangoon, which is the capital of of Burma or Myanmar, as it now? It is now. Now, early on in January, there's a really big battle, which they don't mention, called Battle of Hill 170. Mm
1: -hmm. And
0: that is a huge battle. Yeah, and basically the 3rd Commando Brigade landed and basically set themselves up on Hill 170 and cut off the Japanese 54th Division. And for 36 hours, they basically fought them off and completely uh, defeated them. Um, and then there's the assault on Ramry Island. Again, it's one of those leapfrogging ones. And after that, we then got the, um, the the attack on Chiduba Island. Uh, and they would, they would construct airfields. So it's very similar to what the Americans are doing in the Pacific campaign, construct airfields, which could then further reach in for their bombers, which, of course, we mentioned later on in your and the article you just read there
1: so yeah i was going to say this is what they were doing in 43 wasn't it in the south south pacific
0: yeah and still doing it still doing it at the same time um
1: new guinea and Bougainville, and and just working their way up so what they do is they pick a small island that that wasn't occupied they'd they'd leapfrog to that set themselves up make sure that that was a cut in the supply lines for the japanese in the south pacific and then from there they then work on to the next one wouldn't they
0: Although the problem is quite often they find they were occupied.
1: Well, <laughs> so <like> yeah.
0: So <laughs> yeah. uh, Iwo Jima, Tarawa, all them. Yeah, so it actually turns up being quite difficult, but similar sort of operation, similar concept of ops, slightly smaller scale uh, in, in the south of Burma. 28th of
1: January, 1945. What will the Fuhrer do now? Question mark. If there's any truth in Hitler's communiques, Berlin faces her greatest peril. Yesterday, the ruined city, crowded with over a million refugees, heard from the German high command that the Red Army was only 100 miles away. In the words of the communique, Soviet spearheads had been halted on the river Ober, which for part of its course, marks the frontier between Poland and the German province of Brandenburg. No confirmation of this new onrush has come from Moscow, but it's known that Zhukov's troops are rapidly spreading over the last Polish territory still in German hands. They're outflanking the Bastion of Poznan both to the north and south, and yesterday had definitely reached points only 30 miles from the Polish-German frontier. But even if the enemy is admitting a fictitious retreat in the hope that the Russians will yet give him time to claim a propaganda victory, there is no doubt about his failure on three other sectors of the huge front. Now, this article goes on for ages. And and it's not... I'm going to
0: interject you there. We need to talk about the question mark.
1: (laughs) The question mark at the top of the page. So this, this is the front sheet of the Lowlander. And usually we've got two columns of information and then it goes on to the back page when you've got another two columns of information. But today's article pretty much takes up the whole page top to bottom. But the words on the page are rather overshadowed by this tiny little picture at the top, which is a question mark in which there is very definitely a cartoon of Hey Hitler,
0: and and how can you tell it's Adolf Hitler?
1: Well, it's a, it's the little it's the little toothbrush moustache, the two pinpoint <laughs> eyes, and the swoosh of hair down to the right hand side. Definitely
0: not Charlie Chaplin.
1: So, do you know the book? I mean, if I say that it's also got a swoosh of hair on the right hand side,
0: ah. Uh. I know that book very well. It's it's Look Who's Back.
1: Yeah, that's the one. The there, there, is, there is no doubt about the fact that this tiny, tiny, tiny little cartoon is Mr. Hitler, unfortunately.
0: We should, we should point out that that book, Don't Look Back, is a novel. It's a fiction, a comedy, sort of horror, <laughs> historical fiction, <laughs> where Adolf Hitler all of a sudden wakes up in modern day Berlin and can't understand why people aren't saluting him.
1: Back to the plot, though. I mean, th- th- this whole article goes on to what is the Führer going to do now? Yeah, and I, and I suppose for the guys who are reading us, they it must be on their minds: of what what is going to happen if they if the they are advancing with some degree of success now? The the writing's on the wall. At what point is somebody somewhere going to say it's all
0: over? Well, the interesting thing is, I mean, I mean, the the striking thing there is that it's about a hundred miles from Berlin, mm. I and mean, that's not very far at all. Um, and of course, I think the guys would have been quite motivated by that, because if you're um Tommy McCatkins and you've just been fighting in the Rohr Triangle, you're quite happy for the Soviet Union to do all the fighting for you, yeah, you're you're you're, you're cheering them on. but I think um the interesting thing is, of course, that Berlin doesn't really fall until the last few <laughs> days basically yeah. of the war in europe so so even though it's only 100 miles there's still a hell of a lot of fighting to go and a hell of a lot of killing and dying and and destruction and one thing we've noticed in the lowlander is sometimes you're getting different people writing this it's not the same person every week mm. and whoever's writing this they've obviously gone off on a little bit of a tangent they've kind of um they've gone off the reservation and they're just sort of sitting there maybe pontificating a little bit They're they're having a little bit of a think about where the war is going, and they've just put it down on paper. It's a, it has a, a different feel from a lot of the other Lowlander articles, which are normally shorter, a bit punchier. Um, yeah, so it's, it's, it feels different
1: even the layout's different this week. I mean we've been struggling I should say actually that this week we've got um we've got Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Saturday and Sunday. We're actually missing two days worth of the Lone Lander. But we've been struggling to find articles that actually were interesting and I think part of that is down to the fact that it's being written by somebody else and that person is obviously gone off on one um and is just wondering about what's going on in the world. <laughs>
0: Just as you do. As you do. I mean, it's not as though anything else was going on. No. And finally, we go to this week's Thought for the Day on the 28th of January, 1945. I have passed through pretty rough passages. I have sampled the world and human nature at many points. But my conviction has only deepened that there is nothing in the nature of things which is alien to what is best in us. J.C. Smuts
1: Mr. Smuts.
0: He's South African, isn't he?
1: Yes, he is. He is. And uh, Smuts is fascinating. You have to leave aside his absolutely abhorrent views on segregation and race. Um, You know who Smuts was, don't you?
0: He's in charge of South Africa, isn't he?
1: he, Well, he was the second most powerful man in South Africa after um, Berta. Oh yes. And I've been looking at um the German South West African campaign recently, because that's where Peter White's father fought as part of the yeah. South African engineers. So Smuts did you know Smuts interrogated um Churchill in the Boer War?
0: I actually did know that. Ah. I had heard of that before, yes, and that's why his name rung a bell. But I had heard of him and other stuff, but I didn't really they, know much about him. They,
1: they became lifelong friends. Smuts, um he used to say do. Yeah, as you do, he used to say, "Smuts and I are like two old lovebirds molting together on a perch, but still able to peck," which I think is rather lovely. And of course, he made uh, he made Smuts a, a field marshal in mm-hmm. 1941. But but did you know that um, John Colville, Sir John Colville, Churchill's private secretary, put forward a plan to make Smuts our prime minister if Churchill was incapacitated.
0: No, I did not know that. And that's, yeah, I, know. I mean that's quite a leap from from torturing him. Oh, sorry, interrogating him <laughs> to um, to become to replacing him as the prime minister. Now <laughs> I have to I have to say, Marin, uh, can you just explain to me exactly what he's saying here?
1: Okay, well, so so you have to understand that this came from a speech he made when he became the rector at St Andrews. Okay, mm-hmm. the editor has missed an absolute doozy here. I don't know where he's got the quote from. I mean, uh, do you, you know about rectoring at, at a university, don't you? you? Sort of take on this sort of honorary yes, role. Yes. Okay, so other rectors up there. Who we got? Um, Andrew Carnegie, Rudyard Kipling, yeah, uh, J.M. Barry, John Cleese, Jim Tim Book Taylor. He was also a rector of St Andrews. Yeah, but, but Smuts, when he made his speech up there, let me just read the story that he told when he was making his rectorial debut. He said, I used to spend time with one of my father's old shepherds. And at the time, the First Boer War was going on. And I remember asking him who he thought would win. From all of his great military knowledge, the shepherd had no doubt the British would win. So I asked him whether he thought the English were the greatest nation in the world. And he replied, no, there was one nation still greater who lived in the furthest land in the world. And they were the greatest of all nations. And even the British were very much afraid of them and they were called the Scots. Now, the the editor missed that, and he did this passage that we've got on The Lowlander instead, which doesn't make sense until you add the tale of um, Smut's paragraph onto it. If if I read it like this, it makes much more sense. I have passed through pretty rough passages. I have sampled the world and human nature at many points, and I have learned that it takes all sorts to make a world. But through it all, my conviction has only deepened that there's nothing in the nature of things which is alien to what is best in us. This is my ultimate credo, and it's not founded on hearsay, but on my first-hand experience in that cross-section of the world through which I have lived, that I should remain at heart an optimist. So what he's saying is there's nothing that's so bad that you can't look on the bright side. It doesn't matter how, how bad it gets. There you go.
0: Well, that's a good thought for the day. It's not bad, is why it? I, mean, I, I, I suspect it might have been an English person writing this and that's why they cut out the <laughs> Scots pen. But I have to say, I'm very disappointed, Meryn, because um, you picked out Thought for the Day this week and you missed friend of the show, the Lord Oliver. Protector himself, Oliver, <laughs> Oliver Cromwell.
1: Well, We weren't doing too bad. I think um, we were quite short on, on good articles this week, but we were quite flush with Thoughts for the Day.
0: Uh, who, who knows? Maybe, maybe Oliver Cromwell will pop up again somewhere.
1: Maybe indeed. Alright, well, uh, with that in mind shall we, um, shall we call it a short one?
0: I think we should call it a short one and move on, yeah
1: Alright, okay I'll catch you next time All right. See you Bye.
0: next Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Lowlander The Lowlander was written, produced and presented by Andy Acheson and Meryn Walters This was a Hellish Good production And now we go to the classified football results for the week commencing the 22nd of January, 1945. English League Cup, North Barnsley 2, Bradford City 1 Birmingham 0, Aston Villa 1 Blackpool 3, Blackburn 1 Bradford 2, Hull City 1 Burnley 3, Accrington 0 Bury 4, Huddersfield 3 Coventry Nil, Walsall 2. Doncaster 5, Grimsby 1. Everton 9, Stockport 2. Leeds 4, York 3. Leicester 2, Chesterfield 2. Notts County 2, Derby 4. Oldham 3, Manchester City 4. Preston 1, Rochdale 1. Rotherham 1, Sheffield Wednesday 1. Sheffield United 10, Lincoln 2 Southport 3 Bolton 4 League so- Sorry. English League South Arsenal 8 Fulham 3 Charlton 3 Southampton 5 Chelsea 1 Tottenham 2 Crystal Palace 4 Reading 1 Queen's Park Rangers 3 Clapton O's 3 Scottish League South Albion 0, Rangers 4 Celtic 2, St Mirren 1 Scottish League North East Rangers 1, Aberdeen 2